1: Hello everybody, welcome to this week's Essential Apple, Um, and this week, uh, Glenn Fleischman is back again after, uh, well, what feels like forever, but uh, actually was about 11 months, I think, because uh, when you came on last time, you just published um, Take Control of Working from Home Temporarily. Perhaps you need to red pencil that last word now.
0: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think at
1: the time we were all expecting sort of six or eight weeks of lockdown. Here we are nearly a year later and we're still all locked down. So isn't that fun? Um, <laughs> mind you, you haven't been um, you haven't been exactly been sitting on your laurels, have you, Glenn? Um, I mean, you did uh, uh, take control of Zoom. Obviously following on take control of working from home. And then you released the uh the free version of that. Take control of Zoom
2: Essentials.
1: And uh now you have released Take Control of
2: Securing Your Mac. Um That's right. Yeah. I think my uh, I think I had a productive uh uh isolation period. I think I, I did the calculation and I think I wrote or updated eight books last year. Maybe it was seven. But three or four were new, and uh, the others were overhauls of older books. That was just part of what I was doing last year. But, you know, the mind can turn to uh, productive tasks if you're left with nothing else, nothing else to do.
1: <laughs> so, um, obviously, uh, Take Control of Securing Your Mac is your newest book. And uh, would you like to tell us, you know, some of what it's about, even though it's fairly obvious from the title? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, it's a funny thing is I, uh, Joe Kissel is the publisher of the Take Control series. Uh, he and I were trying to figure out, you know, what's missing in the Take Control lineup because I've written a bunch of different titles. And so is he that kind of focus on security and privacy. And we realized we we have this hole because there was a perception that uh, it's not that the Mac is, um, you know, impregnable. I think some people are like, well, you know, nobody can break into it. And others are more cynical and say, well, I'm sure it's being broken into all the time. And you know, the truth is it's, Apple has done a very good job and has been sort of lucky in its positioning that the lowest hanging fruit has rarely been the Macintosh since you know the 90s. Let's say the lowest hanging fruit has been other devices that are less well-secured, usually Windows, now you know, Windows and Android to some extent. Now old versions of Windows really remain the lowest hanging fruit. So it hasn't been that productive to attack the Mac. But what's interesting is to see Apple's strategy change and I think that's what led us to do this title is that Apple over time, you know, I think like a lot of operating systems, they were kind of getting some of the basics still done even into the 2010s. So there are all these new techniques to make sure that the system part of an operating system is, is uh, can't be overwritten, right? Like that's the key thing. You don't want to have an attacker come in and easily to uh, have some kind of background process running you don't know about that or or uh, attack and. Uh, part of the system, replace files, insert malicious code, and it's just there and you can't root it out because it's in a system part. It's not being looked at. And a lot of Mac people don't, including myself until recently, don't um, run malware or anti-malware software because we've thought, well, you know, Apple does a good enough job. What are we protecting ourselves against? We just have to be vigilant and not be subject to phishing attacks. So when you look at what Apple's done, so they've done all this usual hardening, and so did Microsoft. Microsoft and Apple have actually done such a good job in hardening the core part of the operating system that now most of the attacks that uh, for both platforms are really trying to convince users to do something really bad, and then the attack happens entirely in user documents instead of even trying to attack the system. So you find the worst holes are being exploited by uh, governments you know and, and um, malicious parties and so forth who are who are still trying to crack into system level things to spread mass att- or, or to, there are still people trying to crack into system level components to spread mass attacks, but governments are the ones who 've been most successful and they pay huge amounts of money for exploits before they 're put out in the wild, um, and the rest of us are worried about ransomware and things that 'll you know encrypt and uh, lock our files away so that affected this book where I think in a previous edition, uh, you know, Joe did a version of this book uh, five or six years ago, I think was the last time it was updated. And it was a little more on like, how do you protect yourself against, say, network attacks? You know, you need firewalls you need anti-malware software. Uh, you should be having all your emails scanned. Um, you should, uh, you know, don't use da- uh, downloading sites because they package adware. It was kind of that focus now because Apple has shifted its approach to locking down the operating system so severely in big sur it's really it's like layer upon layer that they've made the system you know impregnable to any reasonable exploitation I, I can't even tell you how much money someone would have to put into a country's have to put millions and millions of dollars in to find ways to break into the core mac os uh so this book is actually focused a lot more on making sure you don't accidentally give up private information uh, understanding Apple's new controls, why they've made so many changes, why it's harder to, say, um, start up from external volume. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and also dealing with new privacy settings that Apple's given you. So, you know, in Big Sur, you're prompted, you've probably seen this, right? You, you upgrade to Big Sur or you start a new machine up with it. And you're asked all the time, do you want to let this app use this the documents folder or access your context? There's so many prompts now. So the book is a little more, I would say, focused on, Uh, aspects of physical security, things you can do that make sure if someone got a hold of your Mac that they can't do anything with it, on understanding what Apple's asking you to do and like kind of configuring your security profile so that you're taking advantage of all the tools built in and some third party tools to ensure that you've got the strongest profile, uh, the least amount of risk on top of all the stuff Apple's doing. I don't know if that all makes sense, but it's kind of a, just a different orientation than we used to have where like network attacks were something we worried about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, because of late, you know, most of the, um, attacks and we've got some stories about, um, some malware later on. Um, obviously you've got ransomware and, um, things like that but an awful lot of them of course rely on social engineering at some yeah. level but of course um as we know people are always working on ways to uh, break in to systems uh without user interaction that's kind of the holy grail isn't it a remote attack um as you say the, the mac itself and to to some extent windows 10 now um do have a lot of multi-layered defenses i mean in uh, big sur you uh, the the system is actually on an invisible non-write partition um kernel extensions are now on the way
2: out um right yeah that's very funny we're going back to system extensions is what apple's preferred term is and any of us who've been around for a bit we're like oh system extensions are back yes <laughs> not the same, not the same thing, but I was happy to see the term yeah, yeah, but I mean kernel
1: extensions are going away um if you yeah. want to make use of kernel extensions at the moment, you still can, but it's uh there's a big rigmarole that you have to go through
2: um to to be and, able to install them and then the uh, m one you know i think there's there's these two tiers also that we had a this is I think why we really needed a new look at it because the secure enclave on uh so you've got max i mean this is where i had to kind of dig into the specs i was trying to remember you could have max with a t1 chip which people forget a t2 chip or now an m1 apple silicon you know uh system on a chip so the t1 did not have the secure enclave uh but the t2 which is you know most max i think made from 2016 on i think Who's 2017 uh, that are uh, have a T2 security chip with a bunch of features, and on laptops that includes Touch ID. Um, but on all the devices, there's a secure enclave, just like in an iPhone or iPad. And then the M1 uh, Apple Silicon Macs have even more protections, and uh it is such a different animal too. You know, we, I got an M1 in December. uh I had bought, <laughs> I had bought last March. I thought, well, you know, I've got this dying five-year-old Mac and uh i you know we're in isolation and i'm doing all this writing and i need a laptop so i'm going to bite the bullet and buy the new intel based uh macbook air right cuz apple's not going to update the macbook <laughs> air series for another year and then of course right right so yeah. what was nice though is there's enough people who still rely on the intel stuff that i was able to sell my 6 month old macbook air for an actually decent price to someone i like so they got a good deal and i uh, was able to roll some credit i had from trading in a previous mac and i had a, a small upgrade fee to go to an m1 but you know the performance is is absurd uh but as you dig into it you know big Sur adds one layer of things and t2 or m1 chips add another and you get this environment where it, i don't think i fully understood this until d- digging deeply in the book to describe the structure but you know so big Sur, right so Catalina introduced the idea, you needed Mojave to get APFS on all devices. So when you upgrade to Mojave, all finally, you know, Fusion is included. So everything's using Apple filing system. Then Catalina, you split the system to two parts, your volume groups, and you have the data volume with all our stuff on it and the system volume, right? Then you get Big Sur and Big Sur creates a snapshot of the system file or the system volume That's, you know, even from like the boot level, like the boot ROM in your Mac is validating that uh, there's a valid system image. And then there's a series of validations, cryptographic validations that layer up that are hardware based. And what you get in Big Sur is a snapshot image of the system from a disk that's uh, read-only and also cryptographically validated in such a way that every time a file even loads off that it's cryptographically validated. So it's this incredible. So you're like, there's still places I'm sure. And and I'm sure people will continue to put, you know, the, the knife in and try to pry it open. There always are, but it gets below the level or should say it gets above the level of where, um it makes any sense for sort of the general kind of crime ring that used to find exploits and buy them or, or create them and and then put them out in the wild and, and they still do ransomware is the big example of that they still do but um uh, nicole per- pearl Roth, who's a, a writer a journalist at the new york times has written a lot about cybersecurity and and um this kind of thing she has a new book out i read an excerpt i'm, I'm wired about the uh, People who sell these zero day exploits that get used, and you know it 's become you know years ago already to become a big market. She got one of the people who um, <laughs> used to buy exploits to talk about them, which is fascinating um, and uh, that 's the wired piece and anyway so the the thing is though you can get hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars if you find one of these system side exploits. So why on earth would you deploy it yourself and deal with all that risk when you can go to a quasi legitimate organization, a security agency or whatever, and they just transfer the money or they send you gold bullion or whatever. So again, that means that Apple at one level, I feel like is hardening its system against government level attacks. On the other Um, it it's helping us have this baseline assurance that a whole category of things is taken care of, but it's, it's so severe now, you know, if, if there's any file, like if you went in, you could test this, you could go in and try to modify any file, change one bit on the big sir, um, system file while it's at rest right mount your mac on another machine go in there like change one bit literally and try to boot and it will say like you've got to reload your system this is now invalid it doesn't val-. and you let and, you know that it's that level of integrity it's not like it checks files at load time or looks at a list or they're locked or whatever it literally would determine if a single bit had changed in the entire system side and that's you know that's that's a great level for most of us who aren't being targeted by governments that's a great place to rest at yeah very, very much so i mean that you're going to have to work really,
1: really hard, or you're going to have to find a spectacular vulnerability to get around that to of level of
2: security. Um, yeah. And if, you, if somebody finds it, they're going to sell it. I mean, it's, it's the marketplace actually benefits, I think, individual users in that since there's less motivation, I mean, all, you know, this is the thing is everything now, as you were saying, it's social engineering is really the thing. Uh, you have to talk people into doing something instead of bypass them by you know if you if if you get a text message and it uh, corrupts your iPhone or something then you're a human rights advocate in a dictatorship right that's that's when you're going to get that but in the old days you know ten years ago those kinds of viruses and um, and vectors were still spreading so I'm not saying people should be sanguine but it also means it's very very unlikely as an individual you're going to get like you know an email that by looking at the contents it will you know, take over your machine. Yes,
1: that, that, that is true. Um, of course, you know, we constantly have stories, um, about various things that come up. I mean, uh, we've had several stories in the last couple of months about Google zero, uh, you know, researchers who've uncovered a variety of, um, tricky flaws. Um, you -hmm. know, uh, the pseudo escalation bug. Um, I can't remember the other one, um, a variety of flaws, so you know, uh, we're we're all in favor of the Google Zero team here because they do fabulous <laughs> work. Apple
2: honest. Well,
1: they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's that, but they also, you know, they do fabulous work. Yeah, it's true. You know, you working... read that
2: piece recently about Glasdoor, about, um, yes. about the Google engineers. Yeah, that was amazing. And I, I just, you know, it gets fairly technical, but I thought that's the kind of thing I wish Apple would put out a white paper about. Uh, and instead, they and maybe they will eventually they'll document it. It's not in their current platform security guide uh that was updated i guess not that long ago um, um this blast- week i think wasn't it? this week i think oh, was mean, that this- yeah because uh rich mogul at tidbits he wrote uh this glowing thing about the new version of it that's right and i just consulted it I, uh, I had a reader ask me a question this is, seems slightly off base but they said um uh they were curious about something with uh, uh apple so one of the books i wrote last year was um home security cameras right i wrote it just before the pandemic of course when everybody's home and no longer really needs a security <laughs> camera so maybe people will buy it this year but you know it's still okay but so in researching that you know apple has its home kit secure video system and uh cam- camera manufacturers have to opt into it and become i don't know if they become certified but they have to uh use apple specs and then if you have a camera like i have a logitech circle and i actually upgraded it to use uh, HomeKit secure video because A, I'm saving a hundred bucks a year. I don't have to pay Logitech for video storage anymore. Uh, So I can leverage the iCloud storage I already have. And B, it's end-to-end security. So Apple can't, even if they were subpoenaed, even if someone broke in, they can't examine any of my video. It's all encrypted using only keys that are stored on my Apple devices, which is fantastic. So I had a reader ask, hey, is the uh, live streaming video, what happens to that? Because I know that stored video is end-to-end encrypted. What happens when you're looking at video on your network? Does it stream it to Apple servers and back? That would use a lot of my bandwidth. Do I want that to go out of my system? Is it secure in the same fashion? I was like, gosh, you know, I don't know the answer. I did some searching and that you're right. That updated document, the only place you can find this, it explained very specifically that live stream video is end-to-end encrypted in a slightly different way between the camera and your Apple devices on the local network. And it's relayed through a HomeKit hub if you're outside the local network. and uh, but, but it answered the question definitively with specifics. It explained the algorithm, explained the key exchange. And I thought, well, this is great. This is terrific. So I could answer that question with assurance to the person who asked a simple question. Hey, how does this work? Like, oh, oh, hey, Apple now publishes how that works. So that's great.
1: Uh, yep. And we actually I've got a link um, to a Forbes story, actually, in the mm. notes, which says Apple issues a bold blow to Google with this brilliant new security move a typical Forbes headline which doesn't actually bear my relationship to the story <laughs>
2: but um that's that's Forbes for you um well, what was the what was their take Though, were they talking about the home kit uh, uh well they're actually
1: the, uh... talking in in general um about several of the things you've talked about how fourteen point five uh you know includes uh tricks like opening your phone, using your Apple Watch if you're wearing a mask, oh, yeah. uh, anti tracking. Yeah. Um Oh yeah yeah. There's a so mention Google of the Apple platform taps, right? security guide um a whole load of stuff.
2: Um you, you saw I mean John Gruber during Fireball has really been hammering away on Google for not updating their apps since Apple had the uh increased privacy disclosure statements you know yep. it's, google still hasn't updated them as far as um, last time i checked a few days ago youtube they've updated youtube oh, oh i see okay i think that's the tricky. only one like, so far <laughs> yeah i mean you've seen the facebook videos or done it yourself or, or the sorry the videos of facebook when facebook released its updated apps under the new privacy guidelines and i just you know you scroll and scroll we we might use we're using all this data and you scroll and scroll and scroll like this this is why i don't have facebook installed
1: so there we yes. Um, all, I was looking. I had a, I had a link, um, and I haven't put it in the show notes to the article you mentioned. Um, I'll find it later. I shall find it later and put it in the show notes. The uh, the reference. Oh the, wire,
2: you, oh, the wired piece is uh, really good. The, yes, Nicole Perwath is. Uh, she's one of the people. You know, it's funny. I'm. Uh, I, I technically, I guess, I'm mainstream media myself, but it's interesting to see uh, who writes about security, especially when they write about Mac stuff. Because I feel like the Mac is such a niche. And um, anyway, Pearl Roth gets things right. And uh, uh, so I always look to New York Times coverage by her. Excellent.
1: Excellent. So, um, whilst we're on that path, um, we have uh, Apple have fixed a bug um, in. Big sir, uh, quite a bad bug, actually, which could cause irretrievable uh, data loss because um, there was a bug which allowed you to attempt um, a, a, a system update uh, without having sufficient room on the hard drive, um, which is a bit of an oversight because traditionally... Oh, my gosh. Yes, traditionally, if you attempt to uh, update your system or install a new system um, and there's insufficient disk space... The uh you know, it will say you cannot do this. Um apparently, uh there was a bug um which allowed uh according to Mr. McIntosh, um there is the check doesn't work as intended, meaning an upgrade can start even if you only have one percent of space left. Oh, this means that the upgrade will start anyway, saturate the hard drive and then uh, the installer becomes stuck in a boot loop. Um this is exacerbated on devices with a T2 security chip um, because you are unable to get into (laughs) Mac OS recovery. Um, Right. So there we go. Um, I've got a link to IT Pro, um, which explains that. But anyway, that has been fixed. Thankfully.
2: Um, Yeah, that's tricky. If you have an M, this is actually kind of ties to the M1 thing, too, is it's um, it's extremely hard to have a bootable external drive with an M1. So if you find yourself in trouble, uh, I mean, with any Mac you can use. uh, Well, actually, the Intel Macs have the firmware password option that lets you uh, lock down a Mac so it can't be booted. Uh, from an external drive without that password and the m1 takes a different approach there's no firmware password but you can lock down external booting period but then further (laughs) you have to have a very specific thing uh you have to have a thunderbolt 3 Drive like a native drive is the only thing people have found reliably. Well, with a full Big Sur installation on it of one, uh, 11.1 or later, is the only way to boot externally from an M1. So, if you're used to doing that or you have a, a, a way to do it, uh, you know, in the event of an emergency or you're trying to do some te- testing or whatever you need to do it for, um, that is a big change. And I'm afraid it's going to bite some people because there aren't that many uh Thunderbolt 3 drives out there, there's a lot of USB c drives that use uh usb 3.1 or later but not all of them uh they don't you have to specifically buy a typically more expensive um thunderbolt 3 drive so i now have one in order I've got an ssd enclosure from otherworld computing and a ssd that's compatible with it uh, so that i can set up set this up for testing but um, that's something that i think people who are savvy enough to have one on hand or have a, you know you can't make complete clones anymore uh <laughs> all these things with big sir all these things happening so uh anyway it's going to be a, it's going to bite people when you get in a situation like this where like, well I'm, you know somebody who's sophisticated enough to have a bootable backup in the past to be like well i'm just booting the backup and fix the system thing it's like well unless you have exactly the right thing set up you won't be able to now so people have to become aware of that too yes yes
1: um i have spoken to uh, mike bombick at, oh, uh, yeah yeah of carbon copy cloner um mm-hmm. and he's done a lot of work carbon copy cloner is now um will work properly with um M1 big sur um machines you can make a bootable
2: clone um it's a bit of it's can you not make as... a bootable M1 clone now you can make a cuz the big sur one, i knew they'd broken the the broken through on that but can you make a or will it do the installation cuz that's the thing is it's like when when Big Sur is running on an M1, I don't think there's a way you can copy the system partition or something. There's some what, weird what, or what you would be recognized to, on the new drive. What you have to do
1: is make a clone mm-hmm. and then manually install Big Sur onto the external right.
2: drive. Right. And then you have a complete bootable clone. But you have to do that extra. Right? You can't just copy files. You have to do the actual installation. You have installation to, you have so to do an installation. And, and also yes, okay.
1: that, that Uh, system, if you update your system and then, like, run, you know, run a update the clone, the system will not be updated. You have to manually, again, you have to manually update the system on your clone.
2: It's going to be, yeah, see, I, I hope, I mean, Apple... At the moment, I think they they yeah, they work security first, and then they, but that they have the. This is the thing to me that's interesting is the eat your own dog food business. Is uh, Apple has at times done system work, sometimes in you know small increments, or sometimes through uh, you know major updates like a new operating system version that have broken major components. And I remember years ago, they broke Retrospect, uh, the backup software that was then really the only good option for Macs, for na- networks of Macs particularly. And as I understood at the time, Apple used it extensively. And so they broke their own backup solution. And so Apple had this motivation to actually make changes and release an update that would, and work with, yeah, work with dance development. Uh, so you have to think at the same time, like inside of Apple. People can't make, I don't think Apple has some secret tool. I think they just have a big IT department that helps with it. But um, it's the kind of thing that I hope they will ultimately, um, you know, mod- make make the minor changes necessary and listen to the folks like uh, Bombich and, and get it to a point where it becomes easy. My wife asks me this all the time. <clears throat> she's you know, an intermediate computer user. She knows how to do everything. She doesn't care about any of it. It's not, she's not a tech person, but she can get everything done. And she'll hit a block of some kind that's totally reasonable. And I'll go over there and go like, oh, we got you know, go to go in the terminal and reset this thing. And she said, how do civilians do this? I'm like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And so when I look at the clone, I'm like, you know, time machine is no longer. I mean, time machine is a backup of all your data. It still is. But the fact that, that you release an operating system, release new machines, and you can't simply just make a clone, even with all the security issues that are, go along with it, I think is a disservice to users. So I'm hoping it gets to a point where that becomes easier again. Yes.
1: But anyway, Mike is working very hard. He, you know, um, not everything is you know, as slick as he'd like. Um, you know, I'm on the beta program, so you know, I get CCC uh, beta builds fairly frequently. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's still not it's still not where it was, but it's a lot further forward than it was when um, Big Sur first broke, um, even though, you know, Mike made some pretty big breakthroughs in the first few days or just either just before or just after Big Sur
2: came out. So um, I feel you know. bad for my friends at uh, Shirt Pocket that make uh, Super Duper because um I think they've had. I don't think they've been able to, with their architecture, get to a complete solution yet. No, and, they haven't. Um, I yep. don't think. Which is which you is a pity
1: because you know is... Dave Dave Manian <clears throat> at Shirt Pocket, obviously, you know, he's been maintaining that for years, and that was a brilliant. I mean, t- to be honest, you know, uh, Super Duper from Shirt Pocket and Mike Bombix uh, Carbon Copy Cloner are uh, you can pick either one, or could mm-hmm. until recently you could pick either one. Take your pick. Your money, and you know, you home free really for um backing up your stuff. But um yeah, I I hope yeah, I, I I hope shirt pocket can um you know work with Apple or whatever to get around that because I I don't know exactly
2: what um what position they're in at the moment to be honest. Um, I, I think they've got betas out to do some of the work, but it's just you know Dave. <coughs> excuse me, Dave's had a um you know they're very small company and uh one of his things is i think they've charged update fees like once or twice over 20 something years so if yeah. you ever bought a copy of super duper you might have paid twice you know some upgrade fees somewhere in there i think he's one of the i wrote a piece for macworld uh a year or two ago about uh software developers that had been you know continuously developing a product for 25 years or more and i wrote about four ones that i thought were significant and um not to leave anybody out. And then people are like, oh, you know, such and such is, oh, and so and so, oh, well, those guys are 24 years. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's such a wonderful community. So I would hate to see Dave and his company stymied by this. You know, at some point, he might just say, look, it's just too much and there's another solution out there. But, um, but I've always, I've liked Duper for the simplicity of it. And I'll recommend it to people in the past because, you know, it feels like a one button thing once it's set up. And yeah. Carbon Copy Cloner to me has felt like a more complete solution. It has a bunch of different kinds of things you can do with it. And not everybody wants to do them, but if you do, then it's the one you need to get because it does these other things that are either harder to do or just aren't part of the super duper's uh, yeah. lineup. And that means, you know, they charge more, they have more update fees, they have a bigger programming staff. And that may be what plays it out. But, yeah, it's it's great. I've been wonderful to have these two solutions to point people to because, uh, you know, disk utility is not the answer for most people. Um, no. Who want to do not. something a little more sophisticated. There we go.
1: Um, so Apple's M1 is already the target of an Apple Silicon malware, according to Slashgear um, and probably <laughs> several other people. Um, I've seen some people, of course, doing the, oh, you know but Macs don't get viruses. Well, this is not a virus. <laughs> this is a piece of adware. Um, this is a piece of adware, but it is, I believe the first one that which is turned up, which has been written um, for the M1 specifically. Um, so they go uh, link to slash gear. Uh, what does it say here? Um, what was unclear was how long the M1 and Apple Silicon in general would stay safe from native malware. That is to say, software compiled specifically for its ARM64 architecture. Um, And bad luck, it's already in Uh, existence. The offending code is a version of GoSearch22, a Safari
2: adware extension. (laughs) Um, There we go. Um, Good time to remind people, uh, (coughs) excuse me, that there is that, that... I've got kind of a scenario in the book about how this happens to smart people because, you know, you get some piece of software, it alleges to do something. And um, I don't know if that one, did, did that one, was it signed by a legitimate developer? It is, 6
3: Yeah.
2: It's been withdrawn now, right? Apple's canceled the certificate. They you know they usually do that immediately after it's reported. Um, and so that's, you know, that's part of the loop. But, it's, but that's the thing is, you know, it, you can, Apple doesn't really vet people per se if you can pay the $99 you get in the program and they do, uh, you know, for the Mac, you don't have to um, uh, get a review. Uh, You have to get things notarized, which is interesting to bypass certain, I mean, this is actually one of the changes I document in the book is notarization is actually an interesting um, extra step that I don't think I quite understood that it had been built in. It was kind of optional and then it's mandatory. Uh, Catalina, I think warns you in Big Sur, it's mandatory as a sequence. Uh, So if you're a developer and you want to, Um, get Apple to sign your uh, software release for Mac without it being in the app store, then it used to be you just passed it through and Apple would basically validate it, right? And then they had a notarization where it scans the software for malware inside it and other kinds of problematic stuff. And only if it passes that test Will Apple sign it? Uh, and this sometimes pulls up um, like there's certain kinds of libraries that you're not allowed to load externally. Uh, that, so that will get blocked so that it can't pull in, you know, things that could be malware later and so forth. Uh, so, you know, when it's new malware, of course, you can get it passed because there's no signature that says this is not malware. This is, it just goes through. And um, that's what I'm sure happened in this case. Uh, so people get software and it looks like something and they double click it and it doesn't give them any of the warnings and uh, you know, it tries to explain what it is and they install it. And I think that's where you have to get, because it's possible to do that. um, You have to make sure people really understand that just because it doesn't burp up warnings uh, that they still need to exercise due caution about where they get the installer from Um, because that's still, that remains, I think the real lowest hanging fruit is a legitimately signed and notarized piece of Apple software that contains malware that someone is convinced to install, but it comes from a source they shouldn't trust because it's not the developer's site.
1: Yep. That is true. Be, you know, be careful where you get your software. Um, Mm -hmm. As we've all said, Um, (laughs) (laughs) and I, I forgot to introduce Steve from geeks corner before we, before we started talking Glenn, but, uh, that's Steve from Geek's Corner Can here, everybody. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, with the other one which uh, has come up is a new malware has made its way onto approximately 30,000 Macs uh, around the world, um, and it has security pros stumped. Uh, this one was on Ars Technica. Apparently, um, an undetect- a previously undetected piece of malware has been found on almost 30,000 Macs worldwide, and is generating intrigue in security circles, Uh, and researchers are trying to understand precisely what it does, and what its purpose is, as apparently it does the, uh, you know, check with the command and control server, to see if there are any new commands or binaries to execute, however, so far, researchers have yet to observe delivery of any payload whatsoever. Um... This, at the moment, apparently, is considered a reasonably serious threat because, um, although it has not yet triggered any malicious payload, um, it has a forward-looking M1 chip compatibility. Apparently, there are two (laughs) strains. There are two strains, one for, uh, you know, X, uh, you know, 86 and one for, um, arm 64. Um... Apparently, it's nicknamed Silver Sparrow, um, and it also apparently has the worrying ability to delete itself should it uh, decide to. Um, this is normally, apparently, considered uh, a feature of fairly, you know, aggressive and uh, well-coded malware i.e. not something put together in somebody's
2: bedroom right and the thirty thousand number is um <clears throat> excuse me our device is detected right because it's, yes uh, that
1: is true that is detected so they we, do say it could well be you know much higher than that
2: yeah and this is i mean again from what i can tell so this is a this was a I had a legitimate certificate that's been revoked a developer certificate. So again, they had to convince people to install it. But I think that's the low bar is you convince people, you say, hey, this is something legitimate, and they install it, and then uh, it fails, or it produces an error and move on. But there you go. Then it's sitting there waiting to be be triggered. I mean, this, again, is also the advantage of Apple's uh, X-Protect system, that uh, it's something you know. This it's funny. Gatekeeper and XProtect are not named in macOS, but they are described in Apple's site, which kind of cracks me up. And there's no XProtect settings. Basically, it's a you know, uh, it's basically a database of signatures of malicious software uh, that Apple's blocked, and it's automatically updated. I think there's a way to stop it from happening, but it's it's pushed out. On a regular basis, and Apple will push out emergency ones if they need to. And, uh, and gatekeepers, the, the mechanism that uh, prevents uh, unsigned binaries, uh, you know, software that hasn't been signed by a developer from running. And you have to do all these uh, workarounds to get something like that to run. And you know, fortunately, I used to have software that seemed like there was a lot of software that was made by, you know, it came out of open source projects or made by individuals, and they didn't pay the $99 a year because they're like, look, I'm doing this as a volunteer effort. So you had to do the whole workaround. To get the software to launch at all, um, because it wasn't it wouldn't pass Gatekeeper protections. And now I feel like enough people in those projects must have like just said, "Look, you know, send me five bucks so we can get the certificate and <laughs> <or> put out <laughs> yeah. donationware things." Because I find I have almost nothing now since Apple a few releases ago upped it, so you can't even automatically disable Gatekeeper. Uh, so you know, and so in this. That was, that's a good change because you don't want people to routinely bypass one of the best out there. Um, but it, it does mean that uh, most people are protected against really obvious things uh, because you can't, because since you can't disable this protection by default and because the workaround is non-obvious, uh, people who are particularly naive will only install software that passes uh, the developer certificate test. So it will, it will have to run and give them a normal prompt and not say, you know, this software comes from an uns- as an unsigned whatever, from an unknown developer, blah, 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 like that's not going to pass the test. So in this case, that to me is the most impressive point on the malware is that the 30,000 detected, it means at least that many people and maybe 10 times more, who knows, were convinced to run something that looked legitimate and didn't set off any alarms. And now, because it's all in Apple's ecosystem, Apple has disabled that certificate and has pushed out the XProtect signature so none of that will actually even launch on on, on anymore um, so that's the easy that's the good part is apple is an easy closed loop solution for it but the fact that so many people were talked into it still seems quite bad to me yes it's um anyway the there, there's
1: a full story on ars technica there and a link to red canary who apparently uh discovered this and uh and named it silver sparrow that's good <laughs> <laughs> there um that was um that's pretty much the um the sort of apple security news um for what it's worth uh this week was also a week of bugs for me um i've run into a couple of bugs this week um i do live out on the you know the bleeding edge of betas but um I found an annoying bug in the Safari technology preview. Um, in the latest build, um, it no longer maintains a pinned tab. If I pin a tab, um, like the essential Apple site, for example, if I close the window or quit the browser, when I open it, the pinned tabs have all vanished, which is exceedingly annoying. Um, I've reported it to Apple, obviously, Um Seems like a strange thing to happen, but there you go. That's a that's a bug in the current. Um, it doesn't it doesn't um, apply to the. I've gone back to the ordinary Safari, the latest build of Safari, um, and that's fine. So it's something in the technology preview apparently um, is causing that one. Um, and also, I uh, ran into a. Bug. this is not really apple but um I'm on the parallels technology preview which oh, is basically yeah. which is basically a beta um which you can get for free if you're you know if you're prepared to do the beta testing and i I wanted to um have a you know an ubuntu VM running just for giggles really um and the first uh technology preview of uh, parallels set up the VM had it all running it was fine um and the other day there was an update which I installed, and then um, my VM claimed that it could not find a network. Um, And I tried all the different modes. There's bridged modes and, you know, uh, shared modes and whatever, and nothing would make it um, find the network. So, effectively, the machine was, you know, uh, (laughs) air-gapped, which made it pretty useless. But um, at Dougie in the Slack room sent me a terminal command, um, which is in the notes if you are suffering from this, uh, which after I ran it, restarted the VM, uh, changed the network to bridged and back to shared, and now it seems to be working. So um, I did tweet that, you know, at Dougie found that. Not me. He's far better at that sort of thing than I am. <laughs> I'm afraid that's a, that's a little bit beyond me. Um, for what for what it's worth, it's sudo netplan set ethernet.eth0.dhcp4 equals true. Don't try and remember that if you really want to use it. In, it's in the show notes. It's in the show notes. Uh, but that means it got my it got my um, VM up and running again with the, you know, reconnected me to the outside world via my VM. Um, and, yes, I tweeted that out for anybody who, you know, hoped that that might help somebody. And I also sent that um, as a feedback to Parallels, telling them what the problem was and how Dougie solved it for me. So there we go.
2: Um, I've got to get into that uh, tech beta because uh, at Parallels, because it's uh, my uh, hint about things to come. I'm writing a book now about uh, take control of your M1s, or you take control of your M series Mac because we assume there will be chips after the M1. Oh, and, yes. Uh, and you need the Parallels uh, technology beta for M1 to be able to test the Windows ARM based version that lets you run the ARM based Windows under an M1. You know, the first steps towards some kind of emulation. Yep. Um uh, you, we'll you
1: can you can get that, but you have to be uh, in order to get that um Windows um version, you have to be on the uh Windows Insider program. Oh right. Right? That's right. not available to all and sundry. It's own that right. um
2: a lot of steps. <laughs> yeah.
1: The the um the at the moment the parallels technology preview um beta program is free to anybody um you can you can just download that um for free as a beta tester um i downloaded um ubuntu server for arm and then add you know installed uh, the desktop environment uh gnome to get that running as a you know as a desktop rather than a server um you can and it has been um, obviously, Parallels will tell you that it, you can do it. But to get hold of the correct version of Windows, you have to be on mm-hmm. the Insider program. Oh, yeah, I...
2: This is actually this is a debate Joe Kissel and I are having already, which is uh, I, he said, well, you know, this will be so eventually you'll be able to run Windows. You know, there'll be release versions of Windows and release versions of Parallels and ostensibly VMware Fusion. And there's already, you know, some open source projects that are working towards this with the M1 as well for emulation. And uh, so you could run Windows on an uh, M series Mac, right? I, he said, but, you know, the problem is what if you want to run a, an Intel-based uh, version of Mac OS? You want to keep a Snow Leopard running or something like that. I, I need uh, I new Mojave for my 32-bit apps. And uh, I maintain, and let's see if I'll get it proved wrong, that the M1 chip is so fast someone is going to develop an actual intel emulator as opposed to a hypervisor right it's not just going to divide access but will actually emulate an old chip like they did in the old days and let you run mac os old versions of mac os in chip-based emulation so we'll see i mean that might be ridiculous but well it's been done before well, it's Been done before, before I'll be curious, or, I mean, someone does it again
1: you know you, you used to have is it worth it though well depends how desperate you are
2: (laughs) yeah so i mean will you get a team that's always the question will you you get a team of people either on a a group like you know vmware which has infinite resources if they think it's important or an open source group where they have people may have infinite time in relative terms uh to make it happen but i I think that'll be the because otherwise then you got to keep a mac you're gonna have to keep an intel mac running around forever just to run older os's if you have some need for it and uh so anyway, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I I'm bullish just because the M series is so the M1 is so fast. I keep telling people, they're like, should I hold out? I need to get a new i." I have a friend asked me the other day, you know, we've got an, an eight-year-old IMAX. Should we just get one now or should we wait? And I'm like, oh my God, don't don't get one now. <laughs> don't buy wait, one even now. if it's six months. Don't buy one now. don't <laughs> I know buy it's one. gonna come soon. It's like an M2 or whatever. It might be an M1 iMac. It'll probably be an M2 because of display and other issues. Who knows? But whatever the M series iMac is going to be is going to be so much incredibly better that uh, you got to wait. Anyway, so I'll be I'll be curious as we get down through M series, just like we do with A series. There'll be chips that'll be fast enough to run. uh, I mean, my test is this: is I don't. Do you use Creative Cloud, Adobe Creative Cloud apps like Photoshop and so forth?
1: Um, no, not uh, I run. Um, obviously, I have done in the past. But, um, I, uh, at home now I use the affinity suite and all their stuff, which which is brilliant. Um, and all their stuff, um, it was made in one compatible from day one
2: right. they were it's nice clean code right And adobe software is is known to be bloated they have cross-platform and whatever environments the test to me was one day i was trying to do something i have a i have a 2017 imac that i now have 64 gigs of ram in because i just needed i needed some boost because i have a fusion drive and in the, adding more ram i had 32 adding six adding 32 more help and i have an m1 you know 16 gigabyte m1 at macbook air And one day I was trying to do something on the iMac and I have it in my office, which is a daylit basement office. And I'm working away and I launch Photoshop and minutes go by and Photoshop still. Oh, geez. So I use uh, screen sharing to go to my laptop on the main floor of the house and launch Photoshop there. And it launches in 10 seconds in emulation because there's no M1 Photoshop yet. In emulation. I think
1: there's a bite. You can
2: get a bite Oh, yeah. There's no release version. I think Lightroom came out too, right? I think Lightroom has has an M1. But so this is so create. So all of the Creative Cloud apps, I've launched them speculatively, uh, just curious, and I've used some of them on the M1. And they run several times faster than my four year old 64 gigabyte iMac in native mode, right? And they're running in emulation. So I thought there is a lot of overhead with the M1, we're yet to explore.
1: Yes. Oh, it's amazing. Absolutely, you know, unbelievable. So, uh... Yeah, I mean, at home, I I run Affinity, so um, yeah. But well, those everybody are great if,
2: apps, I'm impressed by that.
1: Oh, their, their stuff is—I mean, it's amazing. You know, um, it does
2: ninety-five percent of what most people need, and Adobe has—you know—there's yeah. still that edge. You know, you were in professional publishing. You know, there's you have some things InDesign does, nothing else does, and some of the extensions you can get from InDesign, but that's for a very rarefied that group. A, and like most publishing, Affinity Publisher perfectly
1: is perfectly—it is. And they just, as we discussed last week, you know, they just released a, a massive update in 1.9, which added... Oh, I haven't
2: installed that yet.
1: That includes a whole raft of, you know, new tools, new um, functions. It's, I mean, pretty much everybody is saying, you know, everybody else would have called this version 2 and made you pay up again. <laughs> and they've issued it for free. It's a huge raft of updates um, and improvements and bug fixes and all sorts of things. Um
2: Oh, that's wonderful.
1: And, yeah, and they seem like
2: they really have a great, I mean, what, a, what a nice, like new, modern, fresh, oh, fast, yeah. like, easy to update code base. It's, it's
1: lovely code because it's all, all new, you know, when we had Ashley on a couple of times, as he said, you know, they, mm. they wanted to start, the developers said, you know, came to him and said, we want to build a new suite of tools from the ground up so that we can, you know, right. take advantage of all new technology and not have a load of old, Legacy code and whatnot to worry about, um, and I think they've still got a fifty percent off sale, which means oh, you, that's great. You can buy uh, the desktop versions for about twenty four pounds, I think, um, each. That's amazing. And the uh, the iPad ones, I think, are something like twelve pounds at half price off. I mean, oh ludicrously cheap.
2: Ludicrously cheap. Yeah, you should, was, just just go get if you're ever going to use anything like that. You should buy them now because they seem to be very generous with their upgrade. Uh, upgrade paths and and uh, i didn't realize that i've got to get the 1.9 version i haven't installed that yet i run it in a little bit but yeah uh, that is um yeah, I mean these are this. It's it's wonderful to see professional scale tools come down to the level where everyone can afford them. And you know, then there's again, you know, InDesign is going to have its uh, Adobe has its market for a specific kind of mm-hmm. professional. Who's uh, I'll tell you the greatest Adobe tip, which you may have encountered uh, yourself in the past, which is uh, because they they track your usage, which is fair because it calls home when you use it to check that you're a licensed user. So they know how much you use it. And if you call and say, ah, I don't need this as much, they'll look at it and say, like, well, we can give you fifty percent off on the renewal. So I've done this every year or so for years. So I think the annual fee is, I don't know, 600 something dollars for the full, uh, the full suite. And, um, I use InDesign and Photoshop and illustrator and audition. And if I use them sporadically, I might, you know, put in a hundred hours in one month in one of the apps and then not touch it for months. So ostensibly they've got a spreadsheet in front of them. You, and this is true with a lot of software in the United States It's true with broadband. You call a broadband company, you threaten to cancel and they, they give you a deal, but, um, uh, if you call Adobe you literally, I think typically have to call them up and you say, yeah, I don't know about this renewal. And they'll say, well, what if instead of 600, it were $320, you say, sure. And they're like, great. We'll make that retroactively available. And, um, anyway, just a, just a tip. If you need those pro tools, always, always call and, uh, and see if you can get that deal Indeed. For, for outside the app store when there's the subscription based ones, particularly they have a lot of leeway, I think. So
1: that's, um, yeah. And where are we? Where are we in the notes? Um, well, I know you're running out of time, Jeff, because you have, um, other things you need to do, I believe. And, um, so I think it's we'll just sun- mention Sunday, one... morning.
2: Sunday mornings in Seattle right now. So yep. I've got to move off, but, um, thank you so much for having me on to talk about, uh, talk about security which obviously is something I love to talk about. Oh, <laughs> about for hours clearly
1: we yeah well that's you know we like to we like talking about that sort of thing on here we like talking about all those kind of things so um as i say i know you've got to go jeff you've got
2: other commitment um jeff look <laughs> Glenn. <laughs> oh you know it's funny i didn't notice it anymore you know what people call me greg or jeff so often i didn't even notice you said that it's, it's like... um <laughs> i'm sick of jeff carlson just for People's brains are wired. Glenn is wired next to other names because it happens all the time. That's so funny. Anyway. Sure. Anyway, I'll, I'll go go. I'll right, go. So- I'd be happy to be mistaken for Jeff Carlson. Actually.
1: <laughs> so um, if you would like to just uh, mention to the, you know, listeners where people can find you, follow you um, before you go, that would be great.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, the you know, my books, my Take Control books are at TakeControlBooks.com, so you can find those there. And uh, I am Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F, on Twitter, where I tweet too much. And, um, and Simon, you had me on, uh, you know, last year we talked a bit about the Tiny Tight Museum project, which is near to your heart, I know. Yeah. And um, you, you can go to com to find out more about that. I have now sold 95 of the one museums. It's five, five left. left. It's such... I never, I think when we spoke, I had probably had, I don't know, 60 commitments or something, or 65. And uh, it just, even in the middle of uh, pandemic and so forth, people supported this artist. Thank you very much. And uh, anyway, there's also a letterpress book that goes along with the project that's available separately about six centuries of printing. You can find it at that URL too, but it's been a that, that was what I had. So I was writing books and assembling tiny type museums uh, in the pandemic. When my grandchildren asked me someday,
1: what did you do?
2: <laughs> what did Grandpa? you do in the great lockdown? <laughs> granddad? <laughs> I made tiny type museums. Why not? Um, anyway, but thank you thank you so much for having me on it's always a pleasure and uh do it do it sooner i'll be i won't be making tiny type museums in 2021 so i may have more free time (laughs) (laughs) right
1: okay then uh glenn i'll let you get off because i know you've got um family things to do being it's sunday morning as you say so uh thanks for coming on it's been brilliant all right
2: thank you very much
1: cheers mate right well uh I'll tell you what, Steve. Now, (laughs) You might actually get a word in edgeways now. But, uh, no, Glenn's brilliant, and that was absolutely fantastic. I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, We'll take a five-minute break while we go over to John Nemo, who's uh, got uh, something to tell us about in the hardware store, and then you and me, Steve, can take a look at the other stories. How's that sound? Okay, excellent. Sounds great. All right. uh, Well, we'll be back in five after John Nemo. Take it away, John.
3: Good news from Nemo's hardware store. The loading dock is starting to fill up. Let's begin with an audio item from Tribit. T-R-I-B-I-T-A-U-D-I-O, tribitaudio.com. That's the website. The product is called Quiet Plus 78, Q-U-I-E-T-P-L-U-S 78. These are over-the-ear traditional shape and size headphones, $80 in the U.S., color is black. They're medium-sized. They're not large. They're not small. They fold up nicely for travel. They have an attractive and useful oval carrying case. They ship with two cables, an audio cable for listening through a traditional audio port, and a charging cable, USB micro, for charging them up, because they do work both wireless Bluetooth audio and wired conventional audio. They are comfortable on your ears and on your head, and they extend to fit a large, or they shrink down to fit a small size head using the sliders on the side. The ear cups are comfortable, and the headphones are very efficient, meaning they're quite loud, so be careful when you're first adjusting the volume. There is a multi-language, actually printed manual, a nice little instruction book, and it describes the multi-function button and how to do your volume up and down and Bluetooth on and off and answer a call and go to the next track and all that other stuff. They've gone for minimalism as far as the number of the buttons. Charges up relatively quickly and the battery life is really long. You want to condition these headphones, meaning play them not on your head but just in your drawer or in your closet for a few hours to ripen, improve, or enrich the quality of the speaker driver's that are inside the enclosure of the Tribit Quiet Plus 78 that's the model number and the cost is $80 in the US as I said before I have a particular thing about under $100 bluetooth headphones there aren't many of them that are really very good meaning there are almost none well tribit has gotten almost everything right. The build quality, the design, the comfort, the charging, the case, the manual, the buttons, the port. But for my ears, they're a little bit heavy on the low end. And they describe, they say, hi-fi sound with booming bass and sparkling treble. Well, I can agree the bass is booming, but the treble is slightly reduced. So just be aware of that. If you want that low end you should definitely consider the Quiet Plus 78. Tribit is a very good company, and we've been reviewing and raving about their products ever since they first came out. Their website for this product, the dedicated website, which we'll have in our show notes at this episode of Essential Apple, is very, very good. It's quite long, quite extensive, with good pictures and descriptions and technical specifications and reviews, and there's even a company chat bot that you can chat with, to learn about the product and discuss it, and they will describe it and help you with it. So I would say, if you are a casual user who likes Bluetooth or wired headphones, these are very good value and they'll last you a long time. The secret weapon of the Quiet Plus 78, because this is not the first Bluetooth noise-canceling headphone that TriBit has made, but the noise-canceling feature is the secret weapon because there's four different modes in noise-canceling. There's low, there's high, there's no noise-canceling at all, and then you turn off the music completely on the fourth button, so you can have a conversation with somebody, because there's nothing coming out of the headphones, like you're in an airplane, or you're at work, or someplace like that. So you don't need to take them off. You can learn how to use this button. After two minutes, you'll be an expert on this button. Plus, the other secret weapon is the headphone earpieces swivel. It's nice, sort of like a DJ earpiece. So it's got a good swivel action. You can actually turn it slightly away from your head. Very well designed. And there are several reviews of the Quiet Plus 78. Make sure you read reviews from other audio reviewers on the Internet because they've got some very good coverage of this product. Thank you, Tribit, for providing us with the Quiet Plus 78. Bluetooth, wireless, wired, over-ear, black. Noise cancelling headphones. Definitely worth a listen. Back next week.
1: Thank you for that, John. And as ever, links will be in the show notes. So, uh, Steve, we'll have a look at a few other stories now. Sorry you didn't really get much of a look in in the first half, but never mind.
0: There no, no problem.
1: Not a problem, is it? Glenn's always very interesting. So, um... I thought we could kick off with a story that you uh, were interested in, which is um, Apple TV is now available on the Google Chromecast.
0: Yeah, I actually managed to download it. uh, It was yesterday, I think it was, because I've got a few of the Chromecasts around the house because they're cheaper than the Apple TVs, and it works surprisingly well. I'm really impressed with it. It's just like using the native app on the Apple TV. Excellent
1: excellent i mean the apple tv plus app it seems to be you know spreading everywhere like wildfire to be honest um
0: yeah i was debating to get another apple tv um but then when i saw they was coming to the chromecast and the chromecasts are around 50 i think about 59 pounds um so it's just it's like half the price of an apple tv just over half the price so i thought well i'll go for that and you literally scan a barcode and then confirm your Apple id and you're in and it's done
1: Yep, um, I've got um a couple of Roku boxes, um, right. Which uh, you can usually pick up on Amazon for. I mean, they do a range, but the basic one is between twenty five and thirty pounds. Yeah. Um, and that's got Apple TV Plus now. Um, as well as it can pick up all the other stuff. Um, you know, it's got the Roku channels and Amazon and Disney and Netflix and all the rest. So. Um, I've got some Apple TVs, um, and I do like them, but... Yeah, um, I,
0: I, I like them. Uh, I think now my main use is going to be the Apple TV would be just the, the fitness on there because you obviously need your Apple Watch, and I've been trying on that, so that's probably what the TV's going to be used for now. Yep,
1: it's, um, the, the biggest problem with the Apple TV is, is price, you know, compared to the competition, it's not a cheap device. No. Not at all. Um and when you can you know when you can get Apple TV plus um pretty much everywhere these days um about the only thing it's got going for it now is obviously yes as you say the fitness plus and of course arcade but arcade needs to get a lot more sophisticated i think if that's going to be a major draw it's um it's not really a heavyweight uh, Contender.
0: No, I don't think Apple wanted it to be either. I think they're just happy just to let the odd couple sell. But as long as they get their services revenue with people who use their devices, I don't think they really care. No, I don't think they do.
1: Um, if they're going to revamp the Apple TV um, box, I think they're going to have to bring the price down and um, take it a lot further into the gaming field, to be honest. Yeah, yeah there you go uh right so there we go that's good the chromecast uh for uh with google tv now supports apple tv plus so if you're you know if you've got one of those at home you can now get uh, apple tv plus on that as well all good news um another t- story that came up this week um LastPass. uh LastPass probably usually considered to be the best free password manager available um Because it allowed uh, unlimited devices, Um, its main restriction was basically uh, one one user with unlimited devices. However, um, they have announced that from the middle of March, you will have to choose uh, whether you wish to use it on a bunch of devices which they're classing as desktop or mobile, um, which for some people is probably bearable if you spend most of your time on your desktop device or most of your time mobile maybe that will still be bearable but for um for me that's going to cripple last pass I'm afraid
0: um, yeah I yeah I think you get uh, the option to change up to three times I think they said and then on your third one that's you're stuck with that forever then yes that
1: is um that is their sort of um their little olive branch that uh, you know you will be able to change it three times, and I'm pretty sure that's probably for people who are already on it. That's just to kind of figure out which one you really want. I suggest. Um, yeah. I. Uh, I've I've changed over to Bitwarden. I'm going to give Bitwarden a go. Um, not quite as fully featured as the LastPass free offering was, but it's ninety five percent. Right. It has a browser extension. It doesn't have a desktop menu bar app, which is slightly annoying. Um, But, you know, that's not a deal breaker. I'm going to give that a go and uh, see how I get on with that. If that does what I want, then I shall be sticking with Bitwarden. And if not, I'll have to either consider coughing up the cash to uh, have LastPass or um, look for another alternative. Uh, It's a bit sad. I, I mean, I understand... You know, they they have yeah. to make money, but um, it it's, it's owned by LogMeIn, who seem to have a habit of releasing free services with, you know, excellent uh, range of features and then thinking, oh, we've made it too good and uh, not enough people are upgrading to the paid version. Yeah. Uh, they did the same with LogMeIn. Um, That's right, yeah. Which I used LogMeIn for years, you know, as a free user. And then they, well, basically they nobbled it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, I was debating going to the premium for Last Pass, but uh, the way they've done this, I don't think I'm actually gonna bother now.
1: Is that because you think you can get by using one of the, you know, setting it to... Uh,
0: no, I think I'm going to look at going somewhere else. Like you say about Bitwarden, there was debate in on that. A few people have suggested it. Um, the only thing that I'm unsure about is at the moment, LastPass are offering a discount for those who are on the free plan. I think it's £22 a year instead of 30 at the moment. So, uh, But I think I'm probably going to try something like Bitwarden or another one again.
1: What I've done at the minute, effectively, is I've put, uh, I've, I've installed Bitwarden both on my iPhone and on my laptop, right. um, and I've turned off LastPass. I haven't, you know, done away with it. I haven't removed it. I've simply turned it off so that right. I can see how I get on with Bitwarden. And, uh, uh, by the way, you can – it's very easy. I was pleased to find that you can export all of the information from your LastPass
0: vault That's right. Yeah, I did that yesterday. I copied that. Yeah, very
1: simply to to a CSV file, um, and then in Bitwarden you simply import it, and uh, all your stuff is imported straight into Bitwarden, which is rather nice. So you don't have to sort of do that, you know, doing it all over again, um, which is which is you know which is good. So uh, for the moment, I'm going to try Bitwarden and see how it goes. Um, Excellent. Further reports, I guess. Um, I've got a link here, um, which somebody put in the Slack room. I can't remember who. Might have been Dougie. Might have been Alistair. Um, Six free alternatives to the last past password manager, which I believe was from The Verge. Um, Yes, it was. It was from The Verge. And um, they're basically, their top recommendation is Bitwarden. Then they have Zoho Vault key pass uh log me once nord pass robo form um and there you go you'll you'll see articles like this all over the place at the minute because obviously last pass was very much you know the top recommended free password manager um and so those of us are on a limited budget um
0: yeah, definitely it's like a not lot lot a lot of money.
1: It's not a lot of money, but they all add up, don't they? You know, it's they do, yeah. three quid here and three quid there and five quid there, and before you know it, you add it up and you're paying an absolute fortune. So, yeah. Um, That was that one. Um, More bad news, apparently, from the BBC. Spy pixels in emails have become endemic, Um, and this is basically where they put a tracker pixel in, you know, an image in your, you know, in an email, which can track you, tell them uh, when you opened the email, how long you spent reading it, what you did with it afterwards, etc., etc. Only real way out of that is to um, turn off show images in your email client or set your client to text only, yeah. either of which is, you know, fabulous. But if you don't want them to be tracking you, these things can be as small as one pixel by one pixel, apparently. Um There we go. Lovely. Thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think as well, what's concerning, is it does give away uh, your, your location as well. I think it's only your approximate location, but I know obviously that will... Worry some people. It's, you know, and I'm sure this
1: has probably been going on for years, but apparently this is, you know, as Apple, this is one of these things, as Apple and even, um, to some extent, Google, you know, start clamping down on um, tracking, then the people who want to track you get ever more devious and... Fall back on ever more unpleasant ways of finding out what you're up to. Um oh, it's a bit of a bad week for stories like that, I'm afraid, Steve. It's all um all a bit doom yes. and gloom. It does um, definitely
0: seem that at the moment.
1: Does it, doesn't it? Um the other one, even more misery on that front. Uh a new browser hack uh tracking hack works even when you flush caches or go incognito, uh, from Ars Technica. Um Thankfully, this is not actually, uh, you know, something that's happening out in the wild as far as anybody can tell. Um, But um, a bunch of researchers at the University of Illinois say in a new paper that uh, browsers cache favicon images in a location separate from the ones used to store site data, browsing history and cookies. Websites can abuse this arrangement by loading a series of favicons on a visitor's browser, which will uniquely identify them over an extended period of time. Um, basically, what they're saying is uh, you can, uh, you could, it is possible to effectively um, redirect a visitor through a, a number of s- subdomains, each of which has its own unique favicon, um, and this would effectively create a fingerprint, a unique fingerprint, which could be used to track you. Um, and they're saying here, um, a redirect through say 32 uh, different subdomains, which would allow the site to track up to 4.5. Million, with a B, unique browsers uh, would only take about two seconds to uh, accomplish. So you would click on a site and in the time it takes to lo- load, I don't think most people would notice an extra two seconds being redirected no. somewhere. Um, and that would effectively embed a 32-bit fingerprint on your device. Um, as I say, these are researchers. So hopefully, um, you know, Apple and Google and uh, the browser the browser makers will get on onto this right away and shut that down before it gets exploited but um more miserable news unfortunately just <laughs> it's amazing how devious these people get just um as i say the, this is not something that's been discovered this is something that um a bunch of researchers have figured out could be done so it's not um
0: I think that's the only good news on that one.
1: Yeah, not it's not something that's actually being exploited at the moment. Um, and the only other thing I could think about that is actually it's reasonably easy to fingerprint most devices um, that visit a website. And it might be rather more effort than it's worth. But yeah. as we know, these people go to all sorts of lengths to track you. So, yeah. there we are. Um, what else have we got? Oh, uh, on a slight better news, I suppose... In well, this is only half good news, I suppose. After the um, you know freezing temperatures in Texas, which have collapsed the power grid and um, trashed the power generation and uh, shut off the water and a whole load of other miseries, um, Apple says it will support um, relief efforts in Texas and other U.S. states affected. Um, and I think. They are... uh, No, that's all right. Tim Cook has announced a planned donation. Um, He has failed to offer any specifics, although the company typically provides one to two million in disaster aid, depending on the severity of the event. There we go. So, not exactly um, fabulous news, but Apple doing what they like to do and step up and hand out some money for those in distress. Yeah what else have we got steve not a great deal i mean depends whether you want to talk about this or not because the big news of the week is of course australia facebook and google not really yeah. apple related um as most yeah, people it's... know um i i hate to say this but for once um i'm actually having to give facebook props on this one um listeners know that i pretty much despise facebook and everything it stands for but for once um They appear to have taken the moral high ground um, in Australia and have basically said, no, you are not going to shake us down and uh, basically we will stop people sharing links for Australian news on Facebook.
0: yeah, uh, to be honest, I thought it would have been Google that would have been the one that uh, stood up to them. But on this one, like you say, it is definitely Facebook, and I'm definitely not a fan of Facebook. No,
1: nope. you know, everybody knows I despise Facebook. But for the, you know, credit where it's due, I think for once they have done the right thing. Um, Google have done some sort of weaselly um arrangement with, uh, well, allegedly the Australian news media, but as far as I can tell, it appears to be Rupert Murdoch's owned, you know. um, Yeah. And they've done some kind of weaselly deal where they've bunged him a load of money to go away. Um, Meanwhile, the Australian government have imposed a ludicrous law, um, which effectively, you know, allows Rupert Murdoch to... Uh, force his links onto Google and then force Google to give him money for doing so um
0: yeah i i don't get i don't really get that because at the end of the day they are gonna get in the traffic from Google anyway so <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, they've, pretty, they've shot themselves in the foot, haven't they? It all seems very, you
1: know, it all seems very... Uh, the whole thing appears to have been cooked up by Rupert Murdoch, you know, who's then strong-armed the Australian government to uh, say this is what should happen, um, and Facebook have basically walked away and said, no, we're not having it, you, you know. Um, it's all very bizarre. And unfortunately, you know, Canada are now muttering that maybe they would like to do something similar, and... Um, even some of our politicians have started murmuring that perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea actually it's a terrible idea it's a yeah, bloody it's god awful. Awful, <laughs> you know it strikes right to the heart of how the internet works you know
0: it for, is yeah
3: yeah
1: forcing people to pay for uh links um and as far as i can see at the moment you know they've only attacked facebook and google um
0: yeah yeah it's, you know, it's strange
1: why not go after Twitter? I mean, Twitter is full of people sharing news links.
0: Exactly. And as well, they've said that if Google changed their algorithm, which will change where the links are ranked, but they've got to give them 30-day notice as well, and I don't see how that's possible.
1: I don't see how that's possible. I'm pretty sure that Google changed their al- algorithms all the time. Exactly. Probably by the hour. You
0: know? Yeah.
1: The, the algorithms are probably algorithmic, algorithmically adjusted. So, exactly, yeah, it doesn't a, make sense. It's a very, very, it seems to be a very, very bad proposition uh, supported by people who have no idea what it is they're doing. Um, no. And the only, well, I, I can't describe how stupid it. <laughs> I think it is, <laughs> um, which is why I'm surprised, really, that, it, yes, that Facebook, you know, said no and Google caved in. I would have thought it would have been the other way around. But, um, no, interesting um and i think surprisingly a lot of people a lot of people uh you know are coming out and saying look i loathe facebook i despise it i think it's a you know a, a terrible company who do terrible things but for for once i have to say well done facebook um, yeah quite a lot of people i think are feeling a little bit uneasy having to admit that but you know i d- I just think at at that point they have they are correct you know as far as I can see this thing's no more than shakedown it really Not. is you know it's a gangster stuff you know you you must take our links because they've you know, they they're trying to say that we can give you links that you we can then charge you for putting on there that's terrible yeah.
0: There's got to be something in there for, for Google that we're just not seeing yet. There's, there's got to be. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. I,
1: I really have no idea about that. I really don't. I, I, that, I think that's going to run and run. Um, And I think Google caving in is going to bite them on the backside in the long run because I can see Rupert Murdoch then, you know, going, moving to America or Canada or anywhere else where he has a large presence and attempting to do the same thing. Yeah. And like I say, there are already politicians, you know, in the UK Muttering that maybe we should do that here. No, you shouldn't. It's a bloody awful idea. Mm. Oh dear. So yeah, bit of a miserable <laughs>
3: weekend.
1: Yeah, um, and I think that's probably most of the news, I'll be honest. Um, I think we've pretty much covered the note. Um, so we've got uh what have we got? Have I got anything else? Uh no, I don't think we've got anything else. The only thing left then is the worth a chirp. Um, apparently, OWC has in, unveiled a truly universal Thunderbolt four slash USB C cable. Uh, this was on Apple Insider. Um, OWC, um, of course, uh, you know the well known. Um, Retailer of Mac peripherals, Um, they have a new Thunderbolt 4 USB-C cable fully compatible with any modern USB standard and connect any two USB-C devices without issues. Um, this cable uh, unifies all the standards into one universal cable backwards compatible from Thunderbolt 4 with a single cable you can connect any two USB-C devices and achieve full power and maximum data connection without needing to concern yourself which standard is which. So there you go. And that's, um, is there a price on here?
0: don't think there is. Uh, yeah, to the bottom, uh dollars
1: Twenty seven ninety nine uh right, yes. For a point eight le- meter length. Right, so okay. Um yeah. From MaxSales.com, There we are. Well, I think we've done it all and yeah, rather depressing <laughs> rather a depressing week in the news, I'm afraid. There we are. Yes,
0: unfortunately.
1: There we are. Okay, Steve, do you want to tell the listeners where people can find your works around the web?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Geek Corner underscore UK. And I also do a podcast and all links will be on my website, which is Geekscorner.co.uk.
1: Jolly good. And as most of you know, you can follow me on the Twitter as at Serenak. And that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. The show tweets is at Essential Apple. All the stuff is at EssentialApple.com. And uh that's just uh, time for me to say thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody who supports us in all the usual ways. Um we've not had any we've not had any reviews lately. Anybody wants to do a review? We'll be pleased to read it out. And um I think at that point Steve and I will say goodbye. Goodbye. Bart Boo's shots and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I forgot. So, why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcast, and take a listen.
0: Some people like their livecasts to be informative to the point, provocative, and timely. The Mac to the Future livecast is some of those things, but we won't say which ones. Join Dave Ginsberg, Guy Searle, and Warren Sklar for a weekly dose of Apple Fun every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over on Facebook or in the Mac to the Future Facebook group.